It was about 20 years ago, and maybe longer. Eileen and I were at a holiday cocktail party in our town. Friends and neighbors, a bunch of attendees belonged to this rather elite swim club in town. So elite, they call it a bath and tennis club. You get the idea. You might also get that this bath and tennis club is very white, and at that time, at least 100% straight. These friends were advocating that we apply for membership. I said, Ted, seriously? A lesbian couple passing muster at that club? They won't even let my friend Will in because he doesn't have a dental hygienist. I suppose they thought, how successful could that guy be? By the way, he is successful because he cleans teeth. He builds relationships and learns a lot about your teeth. Enough about the dentist. Ted laughed about the dentist, and then he said, oh, you and Eileen need not worry about getting into the club. You're not that kind of lesbians. We said nothing. At that time, I was a national LGBTQ rights activist. Using my voice to stand up to discrimination was my job. But I said nothing. We said nothing. Why? Maybe we didn't want to create ill will in a room filled with holiday cheer. Maybe we didn't know what to say. There were others around the room who could have been allies, but everybody just moved on. What happened here was what many of us now know to be a microaggression. I knew it then, but was, was I going to say, Ted, you committed a microaggression? First of all, it actually didn't feel very micro to me. Ted revealed himself as someone with unconscious bias about LGBTQ people, and that felt actually kind of big. And as for the other part of the word, I really didn't feel Ted was actually being aggressive. And had I called it that, I bet he would have been defensive, and maybe we would not have made any progress at all. I have dozens of stories like this. And so too does everyone who is other in some kind of way. It wasn't until I read Subtle Acts of Exclusion by Dr. Tiffany Jana and Michael Barron that my thinking on this was both affirmed and enriched. And using practical case studies, the authors offer gifts to their readers in both the philosophical realm as well as the, okay, so how do I handle it realm? When I initiate, when I'm the subject, or if I'm the observer. The biggest takeaway you'll get from the conversation with Dr. Jana is why it is important to have these conversations. Any leader who who believes in a culture of inclusion and belonging and are committed to building and nurturing that in our organization, you have to. My entire team read this book now in its second edition. We used a team meeting to talk through takeaways and how it could impact how we interact with others. It would be my hope that you will be as I am, struck by the clarity and insights here and want to share this book with your team. Tackling this is, in my mind, essential to building a culturally intelligent organization where everyone feels a true sense of belonging. But enough of me. Let's get to Tiffany Jenna. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits, I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. 
Dr. Tiffany Janna is the founder of TMI Consulting, Inc., a global diversity, equity, and inclusion management consulting firm founded in 2003, headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. Doc Janna serves as a strategic advisor on client engagements and has deep expertise in DEI leadership using metrics to gauge organizational equity and unconscious bias. Dr. Janna has authored multiple award-winning books on the subject of bias, inclusion, and diversity. Doc Janna has spoken on the TEDx stage on the power of privilege and South by Southwest on unconscious bias. Doc Janna has been featured in numerous publications and media, including Fast Company, Forbes, HBR, and countless other publications. They have authored six books, two of which made this Forbes list, and given hundreds of keynotes and lectures around the world. Their fourth book, the one of which we speak today, Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions, won the 2020 Terry McAdam Award. Last but certainly not least, Doc Janna is the proud parent of two college graduates, an artistic high schooler and a rambunctious Yorkshire terrier. Tiffany, I'm really glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so <laughs> first of all, you got to tell us what the name of your Yorkshire terrier is. Sir Leonardo Mercutio von Humperdinck III. You can call him Leo if you're friends. <laughs> I think I'd have to call him Leo. <laughs> um, so about a year, as I said, about a year or so ago, I asked my team of 14 to read the book that you and Michael Barron co-authored. And it opened up a lot of conversation. And I think it's really important to level set in any of these kinds of conversations. And so can you define a microaggression for everyone so we're on the same playing field? And then I think that your definition will probably be a good segue for the case that you and Michael make to call it something different. Absolutely. So I like to define microaggressions as the things that we do and say that push people further to the margins, that push people away, that exclude people. And I say do or say because often people think about verbal uh, slights. These are things that are typically unintentional. So we're not talking about the overt isms. I don't like these people because it's not that. It's the, the moments when you're offering a compliment. It's the moments when you're just casually having a conversation and you stumble into a territory that reveals your unconscious bias or your lack of awareness about a particular demographic. So when Ted said I was not that kind of lesbian, he actually meant to compliment me, didn't he? He absolutely did. He thought he was saying a nice thing because in his mind, there is a stereotype of lesbian and it is one that he does not care for. You don't fit the stereotype in his mind and therefore you are a positive uh, experience for him. Right. And in that situation, and I won't stick with it for very long, I'm white, mm -hmm. right? I lived in the right neighborhood, sent my kids to the right schools. And so I was comfortable for him. I was... Um, to use their language in your book, I was way more normal than that kind of lesbian, right? Yes, because, in, and, and this, as is often the case, um, in my own case, it's, oh, well, you're not, I don't even think of you as black, right? You're not that kind of black person, right? It's because I'm so much like you. You find similarities between myself and yourself, and therefore I don't fit within the neat margins of how you expect people that you place in other categories to show up in the world. Right. So you write this book. And in this book, you make an argument that microaggression is probably not the right phrase. Prior to your writing the book, had you been using this phrase, subtle acts of exclusion, and sort of test driving it and realizing that it was actually more helpful 
No, we we came up with the nomenclature in response to what we both felt as a, a, a need, right? An acute and profound need. We examined the language of microaggression and both took issue with it. We had been using microaggressions as the terminology within the context of the work, and it always feels off-putting. It always puts people on the defensive, it, and, it, and it is not a good descriptor of what's actually happening. The original title that we played with was There's Nothing Micro About It. Because that the first the first part of the stem of the word <laughs> minimizes the harm that is caused. It might be a small. It might feel like it's small in as much as these behaviors and these the the verbiage that people might use that qualifies as a microaggression, aka SAE, subtle act of exclusion, because they fly under the radar or because we don't respond to them. But that does not make them small, uh, particularly not in the context of the impact that they have, the way in which they harm people. And then the second half of the word aggression, it's it's right there. Of course, when somebody tells you that you have initiated a microaggression, you're going to be defensive because they implied that you've done something aggressive and purposeful. Makes sense. So how did you come up with, how did you all come up with the, the, this new language? We toyed with a lot of different, um, a lot of different phrases, a lot of different words. And in the end, we settled on a neutral, <laughs> more precise descriptor for what is actually happening. These things are not are not microscopic or small in any way. They tend to be subtle. They fly under the radar. A lot of people don't notice them or they easily turn away. So subtle, we call them acts because whether they are verbal, physical, you know, or behavioral, experiential, they tend to be actions initiated by an individual or group. And then what do they do? They exclude people. So we thought, let's just give it neutral, accurate language so that we can uh, reduce some of the defensiveness around addressing this issue. Subtle is, act, is in fact a perfect word to describe them because there, I think there are times, and I'm, I'm sure you have, we all, you know, all of us who are part of one or more marginalized communities have actually sort of missed them all together sometimes, right? Yes, absolutely. We miss them. We become desensitized to them. Those of us who are harmed by them, we hear them so often that we we start to believe that, that it's normal for people to respond to us in these ways. And then, you know, as the bystanders and the observers often witness these things, and we all do, we see subtle acts of exclusion all around us. And that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about the impact of this book. Once you see them, it's very hard to unsee, unsee them. Unsee them. Once you become aware of the paradigm, you will be flagging SAEs in movies, in literature, and in life. <laughs> uh, which is such a gift about this book, right? And so this is what prompted you to write this book, is we need some new language, and we need, to help, we need people to have a, sort of more tools on how to address them, whether they are the subject, whether they are the initiator, or whether they're the observer. And I also just wanted to hang out with a really cool friend. I had met Michael Barron on the conference circuit, and, and that was the uh, work, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, so the oldest diversity conference in the country. And I had already written a couple of books at that point, and he had talked. I was like, you know, have you ever written a book? Do you want to? And he thought about it. And so I love wrangling up a first-time author <laughs> and saying, I mean, he's a cultural anthropologist. He is absolutely brilliant and delightful. I was like, let's come together and solve a problem. And boy, did he uh, rise to the occasion. Each of you coming from very different lived experience too, which I think makes the book 
more powerful, the stories unique in their own way, right? So to talk about your different identities and how they, uh, how they weave together so well in the book. It's incredible. So he's a cisgender, heterosexual, uh, Jewish man who is white. <laughs> and, uh, you know, educated and fairly affluent as far as folks go on this planet. And then I'm, you know, five times intersectional, BIPOC, queer, uh, visibly disabled. And it, it just it just created a contrast of experiences that demonstrate that anyone can be initiator of these types of behaviors that all of us can be on the receiving end of these kinds of behaviors and that the demographics, while they are important as far as how they exclude, the most important thing is that we are all sharing one human experience and that we have a responsibility to care for each other in this way by becoming a little bit more mindful in how we interact. You said something before I hit record. Was it your work is about weaving kindness into culture? Yes. That, right? <laughs> and in order to do that, you must have difficult conversations. Absolutely. Must. You must arguably be vulnerable in some ways. And so I, I feel like that's a really great way to sort of capture sort of your jam and why this book fits so beautifully into that. Do you like writing books? I always, I always, oh. I, I always like to hear this because I've written one and I actually really enjoyed writing a book. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, and I, I had not set out to be an author in my earlier career. It was have, having been do, doing this work now a couple decades. Uh, but when I wrote the first book, it was really a function of I was getting wonderful opportunities to speak to people all over the world and speaking at these packed conferences. And I couldn't talk to every single person afterwards. And I was like, I just need something that I can leave them with. And that's where the first book came from. I was like, well, let me let me offer more. There is certainly over the course of these decades, I've created a, you know, a methodology and a <laughs> and a way of doing things and seeing things that has proven to be incredibly valuable to my clients and my colleagues. So to to share is to care. And yes, I love writing books. Many more to come. <laughs> um, we look forward to them. And I I completely concur with you that if you have something to say and it's resonating for people, either write it down or get a microphone. Precisely. Right. <laughs> Figure out a way to scale the thing that you are saying that you can see is capturing people's imagination, causing them to have aha moments. Don't keep it to yourself. It's right. There's, there's too few of those good aha ideas to go around and way too many people who need them. Well, that's the thing is that there are there are, are an overwhelming number of the good ideas, but people are keeping them to themselves. Everyone's got a book in them, at least one. I and people just don't think that theirs is good enough or that they could write the book or that anyone cares about their message. And that's the thing that's not true. That's the lie. The truth is you've got a book in you. And if you've got an idea that ignites you, that you are passionate about, you've got to get out there and share it. I can remember all the way back 11 years ago when I went to my digital marketing partner and said, I, I think I need, I probably should need a website. Probably need a website. And he saw some of my writing and he said, oh, you got something to say. You need to start writing a blog. And I've been writing a blog religiously for 11 years. Wow. And I don't, I, I don't run out of things to talk about. Now, that would not surprise most of my Irish family. I never <laughs> run out of things to talk about. Um, 
let's talk about this word exclusion. And you have this list, and I, I teased to it um, when I talked about the fact that Ted didn't, Ted actually meant it to compliment me that I was actually a normal lesbian. But there are other things that these SAE kind of, they're questions that get posed in some ways, or they land on me a certain way that causes that exclusion, right? And, and uh, normal is what I, I, I'm not normal is actually the, the, the one that landed for. There are others, though. Yes. So the the framework that we use for types of SAEs are you are invisible, you are inadequate, you are not an individual, you don't belong, you're not normal, you're a curiosity, you're a threat, or you're a burden. And we Mm. looked at, we examined so many different types of SAEs, and we were able to fit just about everything that that we read, saw, and experienced into one of those categories. Yeah, I, I must have read that list a dozen times, just really kind of absorbing the magnitude, right? That's why it is, of course, not micro. I, I believe it is. You may not have called the book, There's Nothing Micro About It, but I believe you called the first chapter, There's Nothing Micro. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's move from my cocktail party uh, to the workplace. Talk for a minute about why it's so important to address SAE the moment they occur between colleagues in an organization. I believe there are organizations that believe they are on a DEI journey and somehow or another put subtle acts of exclusion in some other bucket because that's, I don't don't know, but they don't weave them together. So maybe you could talk about sort of why it's so important that that, that these acts be identified in the moment that they happen? So when we invite people to join us in the work, and that's the way I like to, you know, think about our workplaces, we're inviting people to join us in the work. I love that. When we do that, we have a duty of care to ensure that the environment that we've invited them into is not one that is causing them harm. And the reality of SAEs is that while they may be subtle, while they may fly under the radar and while they may not rise to the occasion of harassment, discrimination, or anything else that might be, you know, disciplinable by human resources, they are causing great psychological harm to our colleagues. And so the reason that we want to address them in the moment in the workplace is we should have a commitment to and with each other to support a nurturing and healthy environment in which people can feel like they belong. The nature of SAEs is that they tend to be repeated over time, poking at the very same, the same areas, the same demographics, the same identities, the same biases over and over and over again. And these are the things that cause people to fall ill. These are the things that cause an inordinate amount of stress and exacerbate many, many illnesses and conditions. These are the kinds of things that cause people to take mental health days and call out of work and be less productive, et cetera, et cetera. And so the the harm that it causes in eroding trust among colleagues, eroding trust across leadership and, you know, and their direct reports, et cetera, is so harmful and so toxic within the organizational culture. I'm going to start with the human first. I am oriented towards the love of humanity. And when people are hurting, that breaks my heart. We should not allow people to be harmed in our workplace full stop. The business case is so easy. If people are crying in the closet, taking this to their therapist, 
you know, having to get cuddles from their spouse because the workplace is just so jarring and alarming and toxic, they're not able to bring their best efforts towards whatever the good mission is of the organization. We address these things in the moment because we have a commitment to our people. We have a commitment to kindness. We have a commitment to grace. Yes. Very well said. What is the benefit to acknowledging? So I, I, you know, I do a lot of coaching where there's a team meeting and someone says something that either is a subtle act of exclusion or is just really mean or patronizing or something that's really out of bounds. Leaders are very reluctant to call that out in the room. They say to me, well, I, you know, I don't want to shame the person. And, I, and I, so I usually talk to them later. And I say, but doesn't the room need to know? Yes. And I think the room needs to know. Agreed. And that that isn't shaming. Not if you actually, in, you know, sort of engage in the conversation with the same kind of grace and kindness that is that should be a part of your culture. And so maybe you could talk, because I think a lot of people might take someone aside and say, mm-hmm. you know, here's what I heard you say, and you might want to reflect on that and reflect on how it landed and have that like one-on-one conversation right. that feels maybe easier. Mm-hmm. If you could actually help our listeners understand <laughs> why it's important to do it in the room, I would be forever grateful. I may have a few, I may have fewer clients. <laughs> All right. So the, what you're what you're talking about is calling in versus calling out. Yes. So the call calling in is actually my preference in a great many situations, right? Like in a Zoom meeting, for instance, I love that we have this Zoom option that we can direct message someone. If someone uses an outdated term for people with disabilities, you can direct message them and say, hey, you may not be aware of this, but that term is harmful to people who have disabilities, who live with disabilities. And you can call them in without calling them out. So so there is it's not an entirely bad choice because the, the, the worst choice is to say nothing, do nothing. And that is what most people do in most organizations. They just let it pass. So calling in is a great first option to learn how to to flex that muscle and and, and hold accountability. But this is the precise reason that we write so extensively about SAE accountability systems. So we encourage our clients, we encourage our readers who have organizations, who exist within organizations to advocate for an SAE accountability system because that is leadership putting a flag in the ground and saying, we know that we've caused harm in in, in a multitude of ways. And one of them is subtle acts of exclusion. We are no longer going to allow these to pass by. We are going to hold ourselves and each other accountable for the subtle acts of exclusion that happen. And we're going to interrupt them as, you know, as we see them in a kind way. So we want to do that in the moment because Someone is always the subject of an SAE. Someone, someone is representative of the demographic or the identity that has been slighted in some manner. Those folks may not even be in the room, but the but but those of us who are attuned to subtle acts of exclusions will know that it happened. And when leadership does not say anything in front of the group, there is a tacit agreement and there's yes. a tacit like uh, like a condoning it. You're just allowing it. You're making it okay by saying nothing. It's a complicity. So as a leader, if you say, and we actually have a guidelines for, 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 you know, for speaking up when these things happen, and we actually ask you, like, the first thing is just pause the action. We say, okay, hold up, wait a minute. All right. We pause the action and we assume good intent. 
right? How you're, you energetically approach these things in the moment really matter because human beings are keenly attuned <laughs> to subtle messaging. So if you are shaming, if you are taking great delight in calling them out in front of people, they will feel it and so will everyone in the room. So assume good intent. Assume that there's just a lack of awareness around which you can inform them. And then you explain why the action was caused. Catherine, you know, I noticed that you you used this particular terminology a few moments ago, and we just want to acknowledge that we as a team try to refrain from using that kind of terminology because here is how it causes harm. You know, you know, I'm sure that it wasn't intentional. It was probably just a slip. It happens to the best of us. But we just want to acknowledge that here we use different language. Here's a better and more appropriate term. Right. And so you explain why the action was 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 paused. You use that teachable moment to sit to 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 add wisdom into the room. And then you just have to be patient and kind about the whole thing. But it's worth doing because everyone in that meeting is paying attention. Yes. Is our leadership aware? Is our leadership culturally intelligent? Are, is anyone in the room willing to hold this person accountable for the harm that was just caused? So when that happens, yes, it's uncomfortable. But when you've embedded SAE accountability into the culture and you've collectively as a team or as a leadership group said, we are going to do this, yes. then it becomes more, uh, it becomes easier and easier to do it over time, particularly if lead leadership models it, particularly if somebody in leadership is able to say, like, I wrote the book on subtle acts of exclusion and almost on a daily basis, I get canceled by my 16 year old who tells me that something new I'm not allowed to say or do. Right. If, if I'm in a public forum, and inevitably before we end this podcast, I might do it. But usually when I'm doing speaking events, I will I will initiate an SAE and I will stop myself and say, "Ooh." so the one that's been difficult for me to uh, eradicate has been using the word crazy. Right. We use that. We throw that bandied about willy nilly. That term is harmful to people with mental right, with disabilities, with cognitive disabilities, et cetera, with mental illness, et cetera. And so I will stop in the moment and say, oh, that I'm trying to extract the violence from my language. That was an SAE. I'm replacing that word with wild. You know, what a wild situation that was. So model it. Definitely call it in when you see it in the most gracious way possible and give people permission to do the same thing to you. Exactly. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are talking with Dr. Tiffany Jenna. And Tiffany has written the book on subtle acts of exclusion. And in fact, the book is called Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. Please take a look uh, at the show notes for greater details. But we're really, part of our sort of umbrella effort here is weaving kindness into our culture, introducing accountability to our entire team so that we build a culture where people feel they can bring their full selves to work, yes. which has benefits on every single level for the individual, for the individual's health, for the company's productivity, for the company's uh, retention statistics. I, the list just goes on. 
and on and on. So I have two questions. One is the development of these accountability, this SAE accountability policy or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Best to have it co-created by the group? Well, I mean, the first thing, it needs to be adopted and accepted by leadership first, right? Okay. Because leadership are, you know, you know, the, the buck really should stop there. And I don't know if that's an SAE or not. I haven't researched that term, but it pro- oh, usually they are. Yeah, they usually are. You're absolutely right. <laughs> if it right. sounds quirky and cute, you're hurting somebody. <laughs> I'll have to look that up later. <laughs> I may have initiated an SAE there. So re- the accountability has to begin somewhere. And accountability begins with leadership. So the the way that we do it is we start with leadership, reading the book, understanding it, and then practicing that amongst themselves so that they can model it. And then we encourage, it's the same thing that you did, have the entire team read the book, right? And we have, we have digital courses and things like that available as well. And get that, get what, what you want to do is you want to spark that, that pilot light that gets them seeing and identifying SAEs. It starts just with identification because the, those of us who have any underappreciated identities, we know what these are. We right. feel them and we see them all the time. There are different levels and even people within underappreciated groups will miss certain levels where their unconscious biases lie. So we encourage the entire organization to take it on, understand it. And then yes, you co-create how you live into it with your team. So you use the word underappreciated, and do you choose those that phrase? I believe you choose most phrases with great intention, right? Underappreciated versus marginalized. Because um, I use the word marginalized. W- was that an SAE? See, there is no one size fits all. Okay. The, the deal is like some people don't like being referred to as black. Yeah. Some people don't like being referred to as African-American. I don't mind either. I like them both. Right. You have to understand that not all Black people are African-American, right? Understand the nuance. And so there, there is a swath of people in the diversity field who do not appreciate the term marginalized, uh, marginalization. They don't appreciate that because it is... I think I think the argument is that it's 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 dominant culture centric, so it's white culture centric. Yeah. Um, right. And yeah. I understand that. And for me, it's I'm not invested enough in any of any one of those particular ways of seeing it that I'm not willing to avoid causing a little bit of harm. I know that there's enough people that don't like it that if I can move around it in a way that it communicates what I'm trying to say, I will do that. I'm sure that some people don't like underappreciated because it doesn't specifically explicitly name the particular demographics that we're talking about. Like some people don't like BIPOC. I love BIPOC. I'm like, oh my gosh, black, indigenous, people of color, a whole big grouping. But some people don't like BIPOC because people use BIPOC when they mean to say black, but they don't like saying the word black out of their mouth. So it just yeah. depends on what it is you're trying to communicate and who is your audience. These are This is levels of nuance. But for me, underappreciated communicates something so powerful Right. Yeah. I know I I've I was really struck by it and that's what it made me ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, let's put ourselves back in that room for a moment. Yeah. And there's an SAE and there's a subject, right? Some there's an there's an initiator of that SAE, there's a subject of that SAE, and there's clearly going to be a bystander, an observer. Mm-hmm. There's also there may be, right? Let's say that I'm in the room and I'm the leader of that organization. And the bystanders they hear it. Some of them hear of it. Some of them don't. The leader hears it. 
Clearly, the subject hears it. It lands as an SAE. Who's got what role in that situation? Ooh. Oh, it, the, so there's so much contextual, again, nuance, right? The context really matters. And that is why we write this book with guidance from the perspective of the subject, from the perspective of the initiator, from the perspective of the leader or the person who convened this meeting. We, we, it's all handled very differently. So, um, so I, maybe the question I'm really asking hmm. is that if I'm the leader in the room mm-hmm. and I am neither the subject nor the initiator, mm-hmm. am I the person who should take make the first statement because I'm the leader? Or am I letting the subject or the bystanders off the hook? Yeah. So so I it, it, depending on the situation and the power dynamics in the room, you might want to pause for a moment and see if anyone steps in, right? Okay, Give right. someone the opportunity to lead in that cultural moment. And if no one steps up to lead, if no one says anything, then yes, the accountability stops at leadership. And that is your opportunity to step in and say something. Understanding full well that the power you wield as a leader is disproportionate. I would much rather hear from my peer that I've initiated an SAE than hear it from my boss. But again, this is why having SAE accountability built into the organization really matters because you normalize this kind of activity. And when you create, you create a sense of psychological safety where people know that if I mess up, it's not the end of the world. I'm allowed to fail forward. I'm allowed to make a mistake and I don't have to fear punishment right? This is not punishment. This is accountability. This is naming the thing that happened and making sure that everyone is okay. As the leader, regardless of whether you chose to speak up or not, you should go back and check check, um, in with the subject if the subject is in the room and you should, you know, make sure that they're okay. The other challenge that people have with it is, you know, there are moments, I had an example that happened after I wrote the book of, uh, a, a, a white man just got right in my face at a grocery store because I sent my daughter to the the line to go and stand in line for me. I was I was grabbing another thing and then I came of course, up behind her. It doesn't do that, right? Exactly. But she did. She had I don't think maybe she had a couple things in her hand and he pulled up and didn't see me. He only saw her and then I came up with my whole shopping cart and he was livid and he kind of went off at me and a diminutive white employee saw the whole exchange and she ducked between the cash registers and she made eye contact with me and she mouthed, are you okay? (laughs) Because she wanted to give me the opportunity to deal with it if I wanted to and not be the white savior who comes in on the horse and says, Uh, right. And so that's the thing that that you want to navigate. Sometimes, sometimes when you are are, are representative of an underappreciated demographic and these things happen, it can feel embarrassing when people make a big deal out of something in a group context in front of you. And so, you know, the relationships within the context matters. Establishing SAE accountability matters. Um, And at the very least, you want to check in with folks and make sure that they're okay. Great. Okay. So I want to be really clear that this book, Subtle Acts of Exclusion, is highly practical. And we are not teaching the book today. (laughs) We are talking about some of the high-level concepts to encourage you to go and swallow this book whole. And there is a second edition. And I'm going to come back to the why the second edition. So I'm going to park that and I'm going to stay back in the room here for a minute. Uh, And I'm a bystander. Mm -hmm. Sometimes bystanders don't feel like they have the credibility. How can I, if nothing's happening, but I really want to say something, 
because I saw it and I can't unsee it. And I can sort of see some nonverbals happening that indicate to me that the subject is not comfortable. I happen to be a, f- a fairly fierce kind of person and generally will say something. H- help me a little bit. What, what could I, and I get that each is different, but just generally you have, so h- how would you help me get into this without actually <laughs> maybe making things worse? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, I I, th- I don't know if credibility is always the case. What I see most often is the fear of reprimand. Is yeah. the fear of being right? Like if I say something, I'm going to get in trouble for disrupting the status quo. The person who was offended didn't even say anything. Who am I to say something? Uh-huh. And who you are is that you are an ally. You are al- allyship in my estimation is a verb. Ally is something that you do. It's not something that you are. It's something that you do over and over and over again. Keep earning those ally stripes. And so you you remain a bystander if you if you do and say nothing. So it doesn't have to be an all-out brutal attack. And that's why with all of my books, I start with know thyself, understand where you're coming from. Because if you come from an angry or judgmental place, that is going to be felt and that's going to come across very differently. But if you pause the action and you come with cultural humility and you just say, hey, I just, you know, I know, I know we're trying to get through this agenda and the meeting's almost over, but I just want to, I just want to acknowledge that um, something was just said in the room that might be offensive to some people. And I just want to, you know, I just want to name that because I know that we are trying to be really inclusive at this organization. And, you know, that, that term caught my ear and, you know, I'm, I'm not making any accusations. I just want to name that just in case any harm was caused and keep it moving. So you can be very subtle about it. I love that. Um, right. You can what I like subtle. about that is that at do- I don't come with, uh, with knowing the answer. You've, you've given me language that says it might have caused mm-hmm. some harm. Mm-hmm. And so that honestly, it gives the subject the opportunity to say, well, actually, Joan, yeah, it, it did. Or conversely, if, if, then, if the subject just can't go there, there'll be some conversation later where the subject will come to me and say, thank you. I couldn't say anything in the room. I just, I just felt like I couldn't because of the power dynamics, because of the blah, blah, blah. But I appreciate you for putting it in the room. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me feel seen in a way that was really valuable to me. Yes. So, so that allyship is not, I saw an SAE. It's, hold on a second. So we've been working on understanding SAE and I could be wrong. Right. (laughs) I could be wrong. Uh, My knowledge is growing, limited and growing. What I heard sounded like it could have been. Right. And I just, I really would just wanted to say that. Right. That's, that's a that's a totally reasonable approach to take mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and not very aggressive. No, I mean, because what, what we want to always protect against, especially in the nonprofit sphere, I see it so much in the nonprofit sphere. Our nonprofit folks are, you know, we are real. We work so hard to attain the knowledge, to understand the perspective, to represent justice, that we turn into these little warriors that attack each other, sometimes worse than, than anybody else. And or so we very thoughtful about yes. how we communicate because we know, right? We oh, I know this better than you, and I'm going to tell you what you don't know. That does not land well. Yeah. So I, I see one of I actually see opposite ends of the spectrum on that. In fact, mm-hmm. I see 
fierce advocates by day who bring all that ferocity into the culture of their workplace, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're a public defender and uh, you're a public defender and you're a black woman and you're mistaken for a defendant oh. and you're furious oh. and you come home to the, back to the office and what do you do with that anger, right? Wow. And so it's really hard to build a culture of kindness when that's the work you live every day, right? So that's one piece. The other piece is the nonprofit sector is crawling with people pleasers, Mm. (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? And so, my goodness, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to, I don't want to make somebody feel bad. And the (laughs) That's such a good call. You are so right. right. Yeah, it's like, you know, it is when people finally get that clear actually is kind, it's a it's a pretty good day at the office, right? There it is. There it is. Clear actually is kind. Yes. Clear up the SAEs in the air. There you go. So <laughs> um, I want to finish by asking you if you can share with listeners besides your book, does your book or the second edition, maybe this is mm-hmm. part of this, offer how to actually build SAE accountability in your organization. Because it really feels like that is job one, step one. The leader of an organization needs to understand that, roll up their sleeves, really get their hands dirty understanding that, and then actually say, this is the kind of culture I believe our organization and our clients deserve. Let's get to this. So perhaps that can be our last question for today is, how do you get started on building SAE accountability. So that is precisely why we wrote the second edition. We have case studies, like we wrote the book. It came out March, 2020. We literally had to cancel the book tour because the pandemic happened. So we had to recontextualize the book for the pandemic and all the virtual work and everything, the ways that we all changed, the ways that business changed. We added case studies from from a bunch of organizations that implemented SAE accountability. So they talked about how they did that and what it looked like. Um, And then we include a discussion guide so that you can help your organization embed and craft uh, very thoughtfully your own accountability system. And then both Michael Barron and and I have courses that are available to help deepen that knowledge. And SAE Accountability is one of the courses that we offer over at Loom Technologies. Great. And just give us the, uh, where would we find those courses? Those courses are going to be available at Loom Technologies website by the time this airs because <laughs> everything's moving all around. So there will be an academy there. And then Michael Barron uh, is at Iris Inclusion, his, his or an Iris Inclusion. Mm-hmm. Iris, like I-R-I-S Inclusion? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. If, I, if we have not whet your appetite to go and, and swallow this book whole, I don't think you were listening very closely. <laughs> And I just want to say to Doc Jana, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've helped us do on our team. Uh, thank you for the work that is continuing to happen. As I mentioned, we have an uh, online community of leaders of small to mid-sized nonprofits, uh, 5,000 strong and growing. And it is our goal to ensure that that online community is a place of real belonging for, for all. 
that we can, in fact, build up the sector's leadership in underappreciated communities. And so this has been part of our journey as well. And so I just wanted to say not only thank you for what you shared with listeners, but thank you for the contribution you have made to our team and the work that we're doing, fo- continuing to do going forward to strengthen the nonprofit sector. So thank you many times over. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate y'all reading the book and sharing it far and wide. It means the world. All right. Uh, Doc Jana, thank you so much for being with us and for everybody listening. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing. Please take good care of yourself and we'll see you next time. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.